little Corinne kneeled on the couch, stretching her neck out as far as she could to be as tall as she could as she peered out the window and down the road from her perch, which was a blue plaid couch, 1990s vintage. She would get her face so close to the window she could see her own breath. She was told not to press her face against it, however. Her mom had scolded her in the past for grease prints on the window. And as she would breathe, she would see a small circle of condensation appear and then disappear. She'd do it again, breathe, it would appear, and then disappear. It was one of the ways that she passed the time as she watched and she waited. In the window, she could see her own reflection. And she saw a few stray hands, the strands of hair that had come over her eyes, and she brushed them aside. As she did, she saw something kind of out of the corner of her eye coming from down the road up the street. A black compact pickup truck. Not what she was looking for. Her dad drove a car. She wasn't exactly sure what kind it was at her age, but she knew it was red and that it was fast. She ran out from the couch to the kitchen to see what time it was. She looked up at the clock in the wall, but she was not yet able to tell exactly what, meant, what that big hand meant and the little hand meant. So she looked at it for a second before she quickly went to the stove. She was told when the numbers say 500 is when he was supposed to show up. And she looked and it said 514. Those 14 minutes had seemed to her like 14 hours. He was late. Again, But he'd come. This time he'd come. He might, he might come. From the kitchen, as she looked at the stove, she heard a noise back outside as if a door had slammed. And so she ran, sprinted past the front room to the front door, grabbed the door, tried to open it. It was locked. She reached up to the deadbolt, undid the deadbolt, tried again, opened the door, stepped on the front step and looked outside. And she saw it. It was a delivery driver across the street. Her neighbor was getting a package, and she watched as the delivery driver took that brown package up to the door, rang the doorbell, waited. No one appeared. He filled out a little slip, stuck it on the window of the front of the screen door, turned around, grabbed the package, and took it back to his truck and drove away. She dejectedly turned around, grabbed the door to close it behind her, this time not locking it in the event that she was going to use it again soon. She resumed her perch back up on the couch and watched. Another car, gray. Another car, white. She went back out in the kitchen again. This time she didn't run, she walked. 518. She walked slowly back out to the couch again, resumed her perch there. This time she closed her eyes. One, two. She opened her eyes, hoping that perhaps her reality would have changed this time. But the only thing that had changed in her reality was now she could see a squirrel skittering across her other neighbor's driveway. Otherwise, it was the same. And her eyes once again moved from what she saw outside to what she saw in her own reflection. This time, she saw herself and she saw two braids that hung down from her head. She didn't like wearing braids, but they were her father's favorite. It had become part of the tradition 
where her mother would wait patiently, combing out with great pain her hair and then putting them in braids because braids were her father's favorite, but he wasn't able to do it for her himself. She turned her head slightly to look at her own braid in her hand, and as she did, she saw something coming out of the corner of her eyes once again. It was red, and it was coming up the street fast. And her cheekbones rose as her smile appeared. But it only lasted for a second as the car once again drove past. It was not him. So she turned and looked aside where she, where she was kneeling, and there was a bag that her mom had helped her pack. She reached down and grabbed the zipper and unzippered the bag. She reached her hand in, looked past her pajamas, looked past her slippers, her raincoat, that fuzzy feather thing that she used for dress-up, and she found him, her favorite stuffed animal. He was a frog. It was so pilled, though, and old and used that it looked like more of a warty toad at this point. It had lost one of its eyes, but she had improvised by creating a small circle Velcro patch that she had restored his sight with. And she would usually never store him away in any way, shape, or form for any reason except this one, because he was only for transit. She had made the mistake one time before of leaving him behind by accident. He fell, and she went away without him, and she was determined never to let that happen again. And so she reached in, grabbed him out, and hugged him with a hug that was so tight it would have been too tight for anything if it weren't a stuffed animal. Her back now to the window. She put her head on the couch, and tears began to well up in her eyes. He wasn't coming. When I say the word father, when I say the word dad, every one of you in this room has some things that come to your mind. From experiences, emotions, memories, images that come to mind when I say father. And for for all of you, it's going to be unique. Some of you, when I say father, when I say dad, you're going to experience uh, a flood of joy maybe in your heart. Great memories. Some of you, however, may experience pain. Some may be apathy. Some of you are, would experience a void of images that you long for. For some of you, when I say, Father, you simply turn to the left or to the right because he's sitting there. Some of you don't because he's not. This morning, we are embarking on a four-week series that we are calling Empowered. What we're trying to do is we're trying to, from the scriptures, go back to our mission statement and see how this is lived out in our midst. We are a family of followers of Jesus, helping others follow Jesus. And for this series, I believe God's laid on my heart a very, a very small chunk of text that we're going to go through for the next four weeks. Unlike this last summer, we went through like a chapter at a time. We'll look at a very small chunk of text for the next four weeks. I, I asked Ryan to set the stage for us last week by asking, what is the engine that drives us, that drives all this? It is the gospel itself. And so Ryan talked about that last week. But for the next four weeks, we're going to go through this idea that we're a family of followers of Jesus, helping others follow Jesus. But we're going to see this. The gospel is good news for eternity. The gospel is good news for every day. And the gospel is good news for everyone. Now, to begin with that, we're going to talk about family. And we're going to talk about eternity. In order to talk about family, we have to talk about Father. And what we're going to do is we're going to look together at a little chunk of text from a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul and his understudy, Timothy. And the first thing that they mention in this letter is the Father. So grab your Bibles and open them with me to Colossians chapter 1. 
We're going to be uh, just reading through verses 1 through 6, the beginning of verse 6 today. It's on page 833 in the Brown Bibles under your chairs. If you brought one with you, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 1. If you're on your app, you can hit to Colossians 1. I will, I will ask you to be looking at this individually, so if you can make sure you've got a text in front of you, I would greatly appreciate it. In just a second. Now, as you open to that, I want to give you a little context, a little history. So A.D. 60, the year is 60 A.D., and we've got a map here of where we're talking about. You can see Italy there. That might orient you, the, orient, uh, you towards the Mediterranean Sea. If you zoom in where the boxes come up, there is a river. It's called Meander River. Someone really was creative with that name. Um, they call it the Meander River, and if you follow it out to the Mediterranean Sea and go just north a little bit, there was a city named Ephesus there. There was a guy named Paul whose Hebrew name was Saul. One time he was killing Christians or or seeking to have them killed. He met Jesus Christ and he became basically a missionary, telling everybody about the good news of the gospel. He went to Ephesus to do that, did that for three years. Now, what we understand is that at some point in Paul's three years in Ephesus, there was a man who came from Colossae. His name was Epaphras. Can you say Epaphras? Okay. Can you say Epaphras came to Ephesus? Yeah, that's what I thought. Okay, yeah. So, so Epaphras came to Ephesus. He heard, he met Paul there. And he heard the gospel, how Jesus changed Paul's life. And then his life was changed as well. And so as a result, he's like, I can't just keep this to myself. He went back home to Colossae and he told everyone there about Jesus. And then what was formed was a church, a family of followers of Jesus there. And then Paul would write to the churches that he was familiar with. And so he wrote a letter here with the help of uh, his younger brother, Timothy, brother in Christ, because Paul was in prison for his faith at the time. So we're going to read just a few verses here and see how they open up, because they open up talking about God the Father. Let me pray, and then let's dive into this. Gracious Father, I am so grateful for the words of life that you give us that are in this book and this letter specifically. Lord, more than anything that I would say. Would what we are about to read now do the work that you promised it would? Is it, is it able to discern between the joint and the bone and the marrow and the sinew? Is living and active? Father, help it to be breathing into us this morning as a family. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, first two verses. Here's what, we, here's what Paul writes. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace and peace to you from God our Father. I'm going to stop there. Here's what I'm going to do. I want you to humor me for a minute. I'd love you to just take, I'll give you maybe 30 seconds. I want you to reread this text to yourself. I want you to read it yourself again, maybe a couple of times, and give you some time to do that. I want you, as you read it, I want you to ask yourself the question, what can I learn about God from just these two verses? What can, I, what can I learn that at least what Paul thinks about who God is from these two verses? So take some time here. Just reread it to yourself again a few times. And then I'll ask you what you find. Okay. What do you got? What do we learn about God? Help me out. God's faithful? Yep. So God has family, right? We see family language in there. We see God as father. We talk about brothers. Yep. Okay. What else? By his will, we do his work. So God is not just a, an, an unforeseen force. God has a will that is being done. Yes. Thank you. What else? So God is a God of grace and God is a God of peace. Yes. Anything else? What else do you see? Anything else? 
Like, that's pretty much it. That's fine. There's, there's probably other stuff in there, okay? Did your own little inductive study there. If we're going to understand God, biblically speaking, we have to understand God as a relational God. We have to understand Him as a relational God. He is meant to be as close to us as a father is to his children. Now, based on your experience with your earthly fathers, that part of God, that understanding of his personalness, is going to be harder to swallow or easier to swallow, maybe based on your earthly father. And I get that. But God is Father. And not only is God Father, we read here that God is our Father, Paul and Timothy write, which is actually a really big deal. Check this out. If you have your Bible still open, Colossians chapter 2 starts like this. Verse 1, I want you to know how much I'm struggling for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. You're like, Troy, what does that have to do with anything? That means that when Paul's writing this letter, he's writing it to people he has no idea, he's never met them. And yet, he doesn't write, dear strangers. He writes, to the faithful brothers. People he has never met, minus Epaphras, maybe, in some, maybe a few others. We think about how profound that is, that we see him writing in this way. Hey, Timothy is our brother. In other words, you who are reading this, Timothy, he's my brother and yours. He's our, and you are our brothers. The question, I think, is then how, how does that happen? God is our father in this, we're reading, if he's a father, it makes us sons and daughters, it makes us brothers and sisters. How does that happen? See, about, about a, it's a little weird. Uh, about a month ago, I was, we were with some uh, friends. We made some friends through our children. We had dinner at their house. And as we were having dinner, um, having dialogue about a month ago, they were talking. We kind of connected on some people that we know collectively uh, in the city together. And a couple times our kids would make these kind of offhanded comments about it. Oh, yeah, Uncle Blank is hilarious or Aunt whatever. She's, she's so sweet. Our kids would say that. And then our, the people we were having dinner with were like, you're related to them? I didn't know that. And so I'm like, well, yes, uh, because of Jesus. Because of Jesus, we're brothers and sisters, and that's why we call them that. Now, I know that that's a little, it's obviously a little culturally, it's a little different to say that. But here's the thing. It is not, it may not be culturally normative, but it's biblically normative. If you look in scriptures, after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the way, the primary way by which the followers of Jesus were referred to is as brothers and sisters to one another. It's family is the primary way. They're called saints as well, but brothers and sisters is the primary designation, not disciples, but brothers and sisters. Um, and so one of my, as I was reading this, I'm like, okay, so are they just using that as kind of a uniting term to say, hey, we're all, but like, we are family. Like, is that what they're doing? They're just kind of creating a nice little unity based on their language. This last uh, week, my two uh, twin daughters started at Silverbrook for the first time, and they have these houses, okay, like these different colors, houses, and each house has like 80 kids or whatever. And they came out and they said, oh, yeah, we're supposed to call those people in our house family. And so I was like, okay, I, I obviously get where they're going with that. Right? We get where they're going with that. But they're not really family. And so I'm kind of like, well, are Paul and Timothy doing the same thing? Are they using the term loosely here, or do they really mean this? And it seems like they really mean it. Because they talk about the love that they have for one another. Now, the question that I came back to them as I was reading this is, how? How does that happen? How do they become sons and daughters? How do they become brothers and sisters? Well, there's, there's a couple little words in here. I want you to look at, but I want to finish this text off. So we're going to read 3 through the beginning of 6. Let's finish this. 
we always thank God the what? We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints. The faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven and that you have already heard about in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. This is God's word. I'm going to stop there. I've got more than I can even cover right, just, just right there. Now, how do we become sons and daughters? How do we become brothers and sisters? There's two words in here. You can't miss them. Chapter uh, 1, verse 2, there are two words. What are the two words after the word brothers? Help me out. What are, what are the two words? All together now. In Christ. Verse 4. Because we have heard of your faith in Christ. So in other words, it's, there's something about Jesus. Jesus is the one. He is the one that makes us sons and daughters, the one that restores our relationship with the Father. He's the common denominator. And there's this hope that's, that, that springs up in their hearts, this hope that's stored up for them in heaven because they heard about the gospel that had come to them and make them family with the Father again. And so when we start talking about our mission statement, we're going to talk about this term, the gospel is good news for eternity because through Jesus, in Christ, we become sons and daughters for eternity. Now, we are no longer strangers to God and strangers to each other. About a year ago, we kind of rolled out this new mission statement. So we rolled this out about a year ago. You've been hearing it ad nauseum ever since. And we're going to keep doing that because we want to be very clear. But one of the things we were wrestling through is how do we weave the gospel itself into our mission? Because it's not explicit there. I don't know if it has to be. But how do we, how do we make it more explicit? And so you remember back... You might have heard us use these words. We talk about how uh, a family is our gospel position and followers is our gospel posture and helping others, is our, others follow Jesus is our gospel purpose. Do you remember that? Do you remember any of that? Okay, I want you to forget that now. Okay? Just forget we ever said that. And most of you have anyway. And so that, that's why we wanted to change it. Because it wasn't, it wasn't easily communicating to ourselves and to others. And so we prayed about it, and uh, Ryan came back with uh, three different terms that I, I think really were bring, bringing some clarity. He's gifted in clarity. And so, um, so they are, the gospel is good news for eternity, for every day, and for everyone. And so to, to make this something that, for, for me, I'm a visual learner, so uh, I wanted to see this done visually. We created a video. Uh, that is able to communicate this, that, that you're going to see a lot more of, that you're hopefully going to be able to replicate yourself when you're talking to yourselves and to others as well. So let's take a look at this video now. At Kettlebrook, we strive to be a family of followers of Jesus, helping others follow Jesus. Our mission statement hits on three essential aspects of the good news of Jesus. Our eternal relationship with God the Father, our everyday submission to Jesus as our leader, and our being empowered by the Spirit to share the good news of Jesus with everyone. The good news of Jesus affects eternity. God created the heavens and the earth and humanity and declared humanity very good. Humanity was created in God's image and was intended to experience eternal relationship with God as our Father. His desire was for people to know Him and to then express His character to each other in the world. For a time, the relationships between God, man, and the world were perfect. But once sin entered man's heart, this changed everything and caused brokenness and division. The good news is that God didn't turn aside from humanity, 
but instead sent Jesus to us in order to restore our broken relationships. Jesus perfectly showed us God's character and sacrificed his own life for us on the cross. Through faith in Jesus Christ, relationship with God as Father is restored. The good news of Jesus allows us to be part of God's eternal family, adopted and restored as his sons and daughters, brothers and sisters. We are family. The good news of Jesus doesn't just affect eternity, it affects the everyday. God created us to reflect him, and by following Jesus and his example, we're able to do that. Every day we seek to increasingly submit our lives to Jesus as our leader, as husbands and wives, parents and kids, friends and family, employees and employers, as neighbors. Jesus even wants us to love our enemies. The good news of Jesus allows us to not only be a part of God's eternal family, but to show Jesus as our leader in all of life. We're followers of Jesus. The good news of Jesus affects eternity. It affects the everyday. And it is for everyone. God wants to have relationship with all people. To that end, we're a family of followers of Jesus so that we can help others follow Jesus. We're empowered by the Holy Spirit to share the good news of Jesus with others both locally and globally. God invites us to be part of his plans to restore relationships with himself, with each other, and with the world. When this happens, people become adopted, sons and daughters in God's eternal family. People become followers who increasingly submit their everyday lives to Jesus as leader. People are empowered by the Holy Spirit to share the good news of Jesus with everyone. We are a family of followers of Jesus, helping others follow Jesus. What do you think? You like that? So again, the idea is that we'd be able to, to, to create tools that we can not only be reminded of the gospel ourselves, but we'd be able to help communicate that to others that we encounter when we're at work, when we're at school. So I want to just take a few minutes and zoom in on that first part, that the gospel is good news for eternity, because here's, here's how this works out. It's referenced in this text it, it, where it says, um, the, the hope stored up for you in heaven. Okay? There's this idea of an eternity that's referenced in this part of the text. And so um, to, to go there, I want to go back to what the video kind of did in a, in a, in a nutshell and just, just extrapolate a little bit. Because here's what happened. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and all things were good. And he created us, men, men and women, in, in his image to reflect him to the world. Now, if you're here this morning and you're a parent, you understand some of this. Because they'll be your, your, your children will sort of be... Like that, okay? There's things that, um, you know, I see Joanne. Joanne's here, and, and, and Ruby's here. And so you look at Joanne, and you go, and you got Ruby, and you go, I shall call her Mini-Me. Because we, we see this with our, with, us and with our kids. There's little versions of us running around, right? Okay? Now, we also know that that's not always the best thing, right? Because you'll hear our child say something, and you'll be like, where did you get that from? Oh, yeah, it's me. But so, so the idea of God creating us in his image meant to reflect him is not that much of a stretch for us. And so here he created Adam and Eve in his image meant to reflect him to the world. They walked with him. All things were good. But then, shortly thereafter, 
pride and deception manifested in sin and marred the reflection, marred, broke the image. It was tainted. And as a result, Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden. And because they were made in God's image, they were eternal beings, which means that there is eternal impact when they turned away from the Father. And that eternal impact is referenced here in this text talking about heaven, but there's another side to this. It's the word hell. And when we hear the word hell, okay, all of a sudden a whole bunch of weird movies come to our mind and pictures and images as well. They, they come to mind. We don't always like talking about hell because it sounds horrible. But we have to talk about it. See, the one thing, though, that I'd like to begin with when we talk about hell is this. It was not originally a place prepared for humanity to dwell. Jesus himself said, when he refers to hell, he says, it is a place of an eternal fire that was prepared for the devil and his angels. In other words, Satan, because of his rebellion before the creation of the world against the Father, the Father prepared this place called hell, which is outside of his presence. Now, hell is described as a place that is darkness. Why? Because it's outside the presence of God. God is light. Where God is not, there is darkness. It's described as a place of suffering. Why? Because it's outside of the presence of God. And where God is not, there is no peace. It is described as a place of mourning. Because outside of the presence of God, there is no joy. There is no hope. But Adam and Eve, they turned from their relationship with the Father. They were cast not only from His presence in the garden on earth, but also in a, in a cosmic sense, eternally from Him. Because God is not a God of sin And they just made a real mess. And it's a mess that I think we all know we can still experience today. We still experience that mess. We see it all over. Now, we like to see it in everybody else, but we actually are part of the problem ourselves. Okay? It's just like our forefathers. We rebel and turn against God. And that sin, that sin looks like everything from murder to meh. You're like, what? Did he just say meh? Do you guys speak emoji? There it is. Everything from murder to meh. See, see, Adam and Eve didn't commit murder in the garden. They committed meh towards God. Because here, here, here's what happened. God, the Father, had given them all things. He said, hey, basically, you get to look at this beauty of creation. You get this. You get the authority to, 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 to rule over it. You get proximity with me. Just don't eat from that one tree because that tree has the knowledge of evil. You don't want that evil. You'll die. And so they looked at all those things they've been given. And they said, meh. And they ate. Some of you here this morning might be like, Troy, look, I'm not a murderer, okay? You should know some of the people I know. They are really bad. I'm a good person. Here's the thing, though. If you're honest, when it comes to God... You may not be a murderer, but you probably very often meh towards God. We, we're, we're meh towards God. And I know this sounds crazy, but the posture of meh is as deadly as a posture as that of murder. Because when we're meh towards God, in essence, we're saying, God, we don't need you. We don't need you. And I, can, I think I can actually make the case, I think we're born in the state of meh towards God and towards each other. In fact, I've been wrestling myself through the idea of free will. I think we'd love to talk about free will and say, oh, we got free will. I don't, I don't know. I just don't think I buy it. 
Because all of our thoughts are bent. All of our inclinations are bent towards selfishness, narcissism, defending ourselves. It's like gravity. We can jump, but we can't float. Because we're bent towards the ground by gravity. I think in the same way we're bent towards meh. Now meh may escalate all the way to murder. We find Cain and Abel, the first uh, offspring of Adam and Eve, actually went from meh to murder right away. But it begins with meh. When we say meh to God, it's us saying we don't need you, and God's response is so be it. You don't have me then, but you don't have me for eternity. And that is horrible news. That is horrible news. But the reason the gospel is called good news is because that is exactly what it is. The gospel is good news for eternity because immediately after the curse that we brought on ourselves, the Father began a rescue plan that He was going to implement Himself. The perfect one was going to come. The perfect Son, Adam, the perfect Adam. And so the hope that's stored up for them that is in Christ is because they are in Christ instead of in Adam. They are aligning themselves and identifying with Christ instead of identifying with Adam. And it's through being identified with being in Christ that we are restored to our relationship with the Father. We become again His dearly loved children because when He sees us, He doesn't actually see us. He sees Christ in us. He sees Jesus instead of us who reflects Him perfectly. Because Jesus took, he took all the meh and he took all the murder and everything in between with him to the cross and died a death. He did not deserve the death that you and I deserve for the wrath against the injustice that comes from our selfishness and our self-centeredness. The Colossians, I can just imagine Epaphras coming back. You guys got to hear this. It's amazing. And they heard this good news. And really, and they became, they came in Christ. As well, they received this good news because the gospel is good news for eternity. The hope held out for them. It was in heaven. But you know what else is awesome? It wasn't just hope held out for them in heaven. It impacted them, not just in eternity, but every day. Look in verse 4. Paul and Timothy had heard of the love that they had for all the brothers and sisters. Can you just think about how hard that is? The love for all, the, even the brothers and sisters? Some of you are really hard to love. I'm just kidding. I'm part of that. We're hard to love. But here they are loving. So the impact of that, that relationship, this horizontal relationship, then impacts immediately the everyday of their, their sorry, vertical relationship, impacts immediately the, their, their horizontal relationships. They love one another. Paul says, hey, we pray for you. We give thanks for you. I've never even met you. I'm giving thanks for you. Why? Because you're my brother in Christ. It's amazing. And then I don't want to, to totally spoil whoever's preaching next week's, like, take their thunder. But, like, verse 6b, that's all we're going to cover next week, says this. All over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing. More literally, it says, it is constantly bearing fruit. So it's not just for eternity, it's for every day. Constantly, the gospel is bearing fruit in our lives as we relate to one another. And so, going back, the application of this is, is brothers and sisters, we have to be part of family. We have to be part of family that's in Christ. And what that means is we use the word groups. So you can call them whatever you want. Call them discipleship groups. Call them small groups. Call them missional communities. You can call them groups. I don't care. 
But the idea is, is that we would be known and we would know others and we would seek to, to act this out, this loving one another. Jesus says, hey, if, here's how the world's going to know that you're my disciples. The way that you love one another. That's how they're going to know. So are you engaging with others who are in Christ with you? There are cards. Uh, Steve made some cards. Put them in the seat backs in the chair in front of you there. If you're not in family of some sort, and this, by the way, the Sunday thing, it's like giant family reunion, but not, not family in the sense where you're actually able to interact with one another and really try to love one another. We're talking about these smaller communities. If you're not engaged in that, please take one of those and put it, give it to any of us. Put it out in the front. We'll find it. We'll try to get you plugged into something like that. And you might say, Troy, okay, um, I've done that, and it's, I, I've had a bad experience. Um, do you want to know why you had a bad experience? Because the group is made of people. You're going to have another bad experience. I promise. I promise. If I didn't, I'd be lying and setting up for failure. But as we, you know what? All the, all, I think all the New Testament letters by Paul were actually written to those who were in Christ who were having issues. Because we're going to have issues. But you know, what's, you know what's amazing? Is that in the midst of all of our mess, meh, and murder, whatever it is, in the midst of all that, there, is, there are two words that unite us. It's in Christ that that community is about Him, lifting Him up, exalting Him. And showing how he's amazing in spite of us. Whether we realize it or not, we're all like little Corinne on our knees in the couch looking to be restored in our relationship to the Father. But the imagery that I created at the beginning is not quite right. If we read these last words I read this morning again, it says, You have heard about, in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. You're darn right it's come to you because he has come to us. He has come. He wasn't 14 minutes late. He wasn't 18 minutes late. Jesus has come. It's not us waiting for him. It's him waiting for us. To be in Him. And therefore, once again, be beloved children of the Father for eternity. And then be brothers and sisters towards one another that would then seek to show, like Epaphras did, what it was like to everybody else he knew. Are you in Christ? He came at the cost of His own life that we might be reconciled to the Father, both for now and for eternity. This is the good news of the Gospel. And the gospel is good news for eternity, for every day, and for everyone. Are you in Christ? And if so, are you then in Christ in community? This is our prayer. Father, I pray that these words would convict us that in spite of how difficult it be at times, that we would be able to seek Christ in the midst of family. Father, we confess. We confess the men. I think every one of us in here is probably guilty of it. Maybe even today. Just, just kind of coming before you or not coming before you. Just like, meh. Father, we confess that. That through your son was never meh towards you. He gave everything. He lived that perfectly. Reflected you perfectly so that we might once again be restored to you.
Speak to our hearts. Help us to live this out, Father, as Christ lives it out in us and through us. We praise Him. We thank You for Him and His Spirit who He's given us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.